The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They're all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The world is a lot different these days, and the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are ready to help you safely navigate it. From helping you figure out the conscientious destinations to helping you figure out entry protocols for different countries, the agents of Blue Pineapple Travel are there for you. Looking to work abroad for an extended period of time? Looking to attend virtual school from a remote location? These are all things that Blue Pineapple Travel can help you do. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in their ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach would be glad to meet with you and to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find those good folks at www.slayrx.com. Are you needing a pleasant spark to take your endurance game to the next level? Are you needing an all-natural, high-quality, customized hydration powder with or without sugar to stave off cramping and dehydration? Are you in need of an effective all-in-one fuel to slay your endurance efforts? Look no more, SlayRx. SlayRx has a really good line of products to serve our most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners. Let's start with Michelle's favorite, Spark Plug, which replaces sports gel and gross post-race trips to the port johns It's a poppin' electrolyte powder in small, easily carried tubes. There's also an all-in-one endurance fuel. It has all of your electrolytes, clean fuel, and for no extra cost, your essential amino acids with or without caffeine. And it costs about one-third as much as other brands' combo rocket fuels. Finally, they have my favorite, SlayRx Hydrate Powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at SlayRx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayRx products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan friendly, and the Hydrate Light is keto friendly. They've all been well researched and developed by a UGA food scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hardworking folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT21 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and SlayRx. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a college professor. I'm the father of twin six-year-old boys, and I am by myself on the podcast this week. Um, Michelle and Patrick and Eric are all doing things that prevent them from joining me, but I will look forward to some combination of them joining me again next week. 
Fittingly, I was thinking as I was getting ready to record this podcast, we were talking in my class this week about English philosopher John Locke. John Locke, as many of you probably know, is best known as the so-called father of classic liberalism. He wrote a lot about self-determination and personal sovereignty. Several of the ideas that he said ultimately made their way into the United States Declaration of Independence, and some of them made their way into the United States Constitution. But he also wrote a piece in 1692 called Some Thoughts Concerning Education, and that's the piece that we actually read in my class. Among many other things that he says in that piece, he says that as soon as you turn a learning task into work, it will become irksome. That was the word that he used. Um, Even if you have something that people find enjoyable, that young people actually really like, as soon as you mandate it as a task, that will change the nature of it and they will be resistant to it. Uh, And I was thinking about that as uh, Michelle and Eric were basically saying, I have all this stuff going on. Patrick says, you know, I I, I got a lot of things happening in my life here. I I don't want to make any of my friends have to come on the podcast with me because that would turn it from something fun and fascinating that we all commit to and are passionate about uh, to something irksome um, that they have to do. And, And that's obviously not anything that I ever want to do. That does mean, though, that all of you have to listen to the things that I like to talk about the most this week, and that is cycling and research. (laughs) And so we will get to both of those here in just a second. Uh, Michelle and Patrick are bogged down in things outside of their lives as endurance athletes. Eric is actually very much engrossed in uh, something that I assume he's going to tell us more about the next time he comes on the podcast, uh, and that is trying to complete both the Tour de Zwift and the Tour of Sufferlandria at the same time, I believe he mentioned this last week that he was going to be undertaking this. That's a huge physical effort. Um, obviously, putting in mile after mile after mile on your trainer um, while not sleeping a whole lot in between so that you have the time to complete all of these events, that's obviously a huge physical effort. Um, it's obviously a huge mental effort um, to be sitting there on your trainer hour after hour completing this mostly while it's dark outside usually first thing in the morning after you force yourself out of bed Um, but it's also a huge logistical challenge Um, the tour de zwift in particular requires you to take part in group workouts and those group workouts aren't offered at any time Uh, they're offered only at certain times and so you have to log on to zwift and actually join the virtual group during the group workout in order to get credit for the stage of the Tour de Zwift. And so here's Eric trying to build his Tour of Sufferlandria stages around his Tour de Zwift stages. Um, And so far he's done it pretty well here, but I'll look forward to uh, hearing from him next week about what the biggest challenges of all of it were. Now, We have a new segment on the podcast, as you all will remember. Uh, Eric started it last week with with talking about his shoes. We're calling it The Run, um, in which over the course of the time from our last podcast to this podcast, one of us will talk about some run that we did and why it was meaningful, why it was significant. I'm the only one here, so this week this segment falls to me, but I dare say uh, that it probably would have fallen to me this week anyway, because for myself, on Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock, I had a good, meaningful run that I wanted to share. Um, And it was, as I just mentioned, for Eric, it was the stage 5 of the Tour de Zwift. Now, Eric's been doing the Tour de Zwift on his bike. 
I did the Tour de Zwift both on my bike and on the run, um, and that meant that I had to finish eight stages of running on the treadmill and eight stages of riding my bike on the trainer over the course of about seven weeks. Now, given the fact that I coach a virtual group workout on Trainer Road on Wednesday morning and on Friday morning, um, given the fact that I've been racing on Zwift on Tuesday nights, trying to find the time in my training schedule to do 16 group workouts over the course of seven weeks uh, was pretty difficult. Um, the logistical challenge was a lot, to say nothing of the energy that it required from me. But I was actually able to get it knocked out um, by doing that last stage five run, like I said, at nine o'clock on Wednesday morning. Um, I'm actually very proud of this. Um, like I said on the end of the year podcast last year, there are things that I'm taking pride in and things that are keeping me motivated and things that I've enjoyed over the course of the past year uh, since the pandemic really took hold that I would not have thought I would have enjoyed and that I would not have thought kept me motivated. Um, and the Tour de Zwift, interestingly enough, was one of these things. I did order the t-shirt that I said I was going to order, and so I look forward to actually having that t-shirt and wearing it. Um, maybe in real life, when runs, if I ever decide to go outside again. Um, but we're going to talk more about that in just a second, too. The other reason why this is significant is that for the first time, I wore my new shoes. As I mentioned last week on the podcast, I bought a pair of Skechers Go Run Speed Elite Hypers. Um, and these are the Skechers racers that are carbon plated. Um, I took advantage of the opportunity to, on the treadmill there on Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock to strap them on for the first time and see how they went. Um, I did several 30 second pickups um, at close to the top speed or at the top speed of the treadmill, close to my overall top speed. Um, and I'll be doing another workout in them tomorrow as well, also on the treadmill, just to kind of get a better sense of how they feel. I gotta tell you, here at the outset, I actually like them a lot. Um, they're not the best looking pair of shoes I've ever owned, as we joked last week. Um, the big Speed Elite that is written up the side of the shoe is a little bit gaudy, um, but uh, I like the way they feel uh, and the, I like the way I felt while running in them. So um, stay tuned on, on the next chapter about the Skechers Go Run Speed Elite Hypers. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about cycling and a piece of news related to the, to the cycling world. There are always in the world of cycling several new rules at the start of the cycling year. Now, the start of the cycling year this year has been a little bit different. It's a little bit delayed. Normally, there are some really early races in January down in Australia and then into February and into March. Uh, and most of those races have been canceled for 2021, understandably, rightfully. Uh, and I'm glad that they did that. Um, but always right around this time of year, they release a new slate of rules that will affect uh, cyclists and cycling races over the course of the year. Um, the rules are, are created by the uh, UCI Rules Committee. Um, UCI is the international governing body of cycling. Um, and there are lots of different stakeholders that are involved in the rulemaking process, including a group of riders, as a matter of fact, called the CPA, but I'll circle back around to them in just a minute. They made rules this year around barriers, um, which is good. Um, they're going to continue making rules around barriers for next year. And when I say barriers, I mean the big 
uh, barriers that separate the crowd from actually the cycling race. Um, there was a pretty horrific crash in the Tour of Poland last year uh, that resulted in some pretty devastating injuries to a sprinter. Um, and because of that, that's very much on the mind of a lot of the commissaires, uh, very much on the mind of a lot of the governors of the sport, um, and also very much on the minds of a lot of the riders. And so they've begun the process of addressing what barriers can be made out of and where they have to be placed and how it is they have to be arranged and things like that. Um, and they're going to continue that process into next year. Um, they also made some rules about how cars can interact with the Peloton. Um, in these big, huge, long races, there's normally a group of cars that actually follow the racers, um, and they give the racers food, or if they have a mechanical issue, or if they crash and need medical attention, um, the cars that are following the race can actually stop and they can help out the riders so that the race can actually continue on. Um, there's been some incidents over the course of the past several years where cars have endangered riders um, because they've ridden too close to the group or they've tried to pass the group in unsafe ways and things like that. Um, and so there's some new rules about that. There's always new rules about equipment, um, bottle cages and socks and all sorts of other things like that. But there were three rules this year, three new rules that caught everybody's attention um, and made a lot of rule, a lot of news in the cycling world. Um, the first one had to do with littering, um, and the second and third ones both had to do with positions on the bike and and how you're able to ride the bike. And I'll explain to you what I mean here in just a second. So, the first one, littering. Um, the current situation in cycling, as it's been over the course of the past several years is that cyclists will take whatever trash that they have or whatever bottles that they're finished with and simply toss them by the side of the road. Um, like I said before, most cycling races are multi-hour affairs. Your typical one-day cycling race for pro men is about 150 miles long. Um, during a grand tour for pro men, the average day is about 100 miles long. And so you're talking about hours after hours after hours that they're actually riding on bikes. Um, and during that time, they're fueling with gels and sometimes even with sandwiches and with different bars. And of course, they're drinking lots of water and sports drinks out of bottles. Over the course of the past several years, a lot of different groups around Europe and around the world have criticized cyclists for when they finish a drink or when they finish some of their, their nutrition, they simply throw the trash by the side of the road. Now, when it comes to bottles, the plastic bottles that they tend to drink out of, most of those are actually branded with the team names, and if they toss those, more likely than not, a fan is going to pick that up and is going to make that into a souvenir. Um, but I don't think anybody is a big enough fan to actually pick up like the used gel wrapper from Peter Sagan or somebody like that um, and actually consider that to be, you know, a, a keepsake. Um, and rather, most of that trash just kind of stays beside the, beside the road um, and pollutes the environment. Um, the... UCI decided recently that they've created new litter zones. 
And so about every 30 to 40 kilometers, which is only about every 20 to 30 miles, so not super far apart, uh, less than an hour apart um, at the speeds of the Peloton, um, riders can ditch bottles, they can ditch trash, anything that they actually accrue over the course of the race, um, they'll be able to throw in that litter zone. And then they'll have specifically designated employees that will come in and will clean up that litter zone. Um, and so I think that's a really, really positive thing. Um, if you break those rules, if you discard waste outside of the litter zone, um, riders can be fined or docked ranking, uh, ranking points or penalized time. Uh, in stage races like the Tour de France or the Giro d'Italia, they said that the first infringement of throwing waste outside the zone can actually be punished with a 30-second penalty. Second infringement would be a two-minute penalty. And then a third infringement could actually get you disqualified from one of the Grand Tour stage races or even one of the, the shorter week-long stage races. Um, and so there's some real teeth in the rules here as well. Um, I'm obviously very much in favor of this, as you can gather, because of the environment um, and because I just don't like to see a whole lot of pollution for no reason. Um, but there's also a bigger principle here that I'm going to circle around to in just a minute. Um, and that's that people who watch pro cycling, cyclists who watch pro cycling, they look up to pro cyclists as role models. And so as strange as it may sound, when a cyclist who's just a recreational cyclist or maybe a, a local racer or something like that sees a pro cyclist throw an aluminum can into the ditch beside the road, a lot of cyclists believe, well, that's just kind of what cyclists are supposed to do, and they start to do it themselves. Um, amateurs mimic the behaviors that they see in pros, um, and that goes for everything from the equipment that we use to shaving our legs to littering. And so when we see pros littering, that leads us to be more likely to litter ourselves. And so by the UCI actually making a rule here saying that you cannot litter, you can't just throw trash wherever you want to whenever you're done with it, not only is I think that better for the environment and it's going to improve the uh, environment around races, but in addition, I'm thinking and hoping that will filter down to the amateur ranks uh, such that the guys in the local races or in the local charity rides won't be tossing their cans and their gel wrappers and whatever else out of their pockets into the ditch on the side of the road. I would like to say that I've never seen that happen, but I've seen it happen a lot. Um, and so I think this is a very good rule, uh, both for the environment, for pros, um, and of course for amateurs as well. And like I said, that actually kind of leads into the other two rules as well. Um, the other two rules both had to do with positions that they now made illegal on the bike. Now, the first one is a forearms on bars position. Um, if you imagine someone riding a bike, normally they have their hands on the handlebars in some place. Either they have them down in the curved part called the drops, or they might have them up on the tops called the hoods, or they might actually have them side by side towards the center of the handlebar. Um, wherever it happens to be, uh, they normally are holding the bar. But every now and then you'll get somebody who might be on the front of a group or might be broken away. And in order to try and take some of the stress off of their hands and off of their back and off of their arms, they'll actually drape their forearms over the front of the cockpit of the bike. Now they're still leaning on the front of the bike, but it's more dynamic. It takes some of that stress off their hands and their upper body muscles like I was talking about but it also means that they have less control of the bike. 
their hands are kind of far away from their brakes. You can't really steer with your elbows. And so if something happens and they have to react really quickly, they would have a slightly slower reaction time um, and that would potentially lead to something catastrophic. Um, it is less safe to ride with your forearms on the bars. But like I said, it's particularly common in breakaways. Now you don't see a whole lot of amateurs doing this, but you won't see any pros doing it now because the UCI has said that riding with your forearms on the bars rather than riding in the way that the bike is actually intended to be ridden um, is now illegal. It's now considered to be an illegal position uh, and you can be fined and potentially even disqualified um, if you are repeatedly caught infringing this rule. The second one is a position called the super tuck. Um, and I do see amateurs doing this one all the time, mimicking the pros. Um, now, in order to really understand the super tuck, you need to understand the difference between descending on a bike and riding downhill on a bike. Most bike races, at some point or another, go up a big hill. And usually if they go up a big hill, that means they're going to be coming down a big hill. They're going to be coming down the side of a mountain. If you've ever been on a bike in the mountains, if you want to, you can just sit up and the wind will be in your face and it'll be on your chest and that'll slow you down a little bit because it's not very aerodynamic and you can put on your brakes if you need to and and you won't necessarily take real sharp lines like you would see maybe a motorcycle doing or something like that as you're going down the curvy uh, roads on the side of a mountain rather you just kind of ride on down the side of a mountain well then there's also descending and descending is what cyclists do when they are trying to minimize the amount of time it takes them to get from the top of the mountain down to the bottom of the mountain. And when someone is descending, you'll see them going much faster, um, but you'll also see them tucked way down low in order to become more aero and help the air flow over them. Um, and you'll also see them taking these really sharp lines around different turns in order to ensure that they're able to maintain their speed through the curves rather than having to back off and slow down and speed up. I can tell you from experience that if you're descending, you will get down a mountain much, much, much faster than you will if you're simply relaxedly riding down the hill. Descending is actually considered to be a skill among cyclists. There are many races that literally finish at the bottom of hills and the people who win it are the ones who descend the best. And so this is actually a skill that, that accomplished pro cyclists need to have if they want to be successful in pro bike races. So with that in mind, several cyclists over the course of the past decade have begun to slide off of their saddle when they're descending. And rather than sit on their saddle, rather than sit on their bike as you would normally expect them to, they get off of the seat and they straddle the top tube of the bike. They put their chin almost onto the handlebars of the bike and they lean way forward over that front wheel. Now that gets them a lot lower and it gets them a lot more aero, but again, it gives them a lot less control of the bike. Further, it means that if they crash the bike, if they hit a bump or something like that and they crash the bike, the results could be pretty catastrophic given that their face is so far out in front of them. Um, now, like I said, I've seen amateurs doing this one all the time. And again, it's very hard to control the bike when, when you're doing this. I have a really close friend who the last bike race he ever did 
um, he got into a big group crash because some guy in our little small local race decided that because he was going down a slight downhill, he needed to get into a super tuck position. Why did he think that? Because he's seen pros doing that and he figured that, well, if I'm a, a bike racer and I'm trying to minimize the time it takes me to get to the bottom of this mountain, I need to get into that super tuck position as well. And he did, and he's not as good a bike handler as a lot of pro cyclists, and he crashed four or five people in this group, including my good friend. Um, now, my friend was okay, but not everybody in that group was okay. There were some broken bones in that group. Um, but it was enough to convince my friend that, that he didn't want to, to race bikes anymore if people were going to be doing stupid things like this. So I'm actually kind of torn on this one. Um, like I said, and like I'm saying right now, the rules tend to filter down. I expect to see fewer people littering because littering is now illegal at the pro level and you won't see pros doing that. Um, I expect to see fewer people super tucking, which I would imagine is probably a good thing because pros can't do it anymore and it's now illegal. Um, but at the same time, pro bike racers do take a lot of calculated risks. Um, and as I said, descending is considered to be a skill inside the pro peloton and so should we be taking away one of the tools or one of the approaches that a lot of cyclists do even though it's risky in order to maximize their race and and potentially win um, i'm not sure how i feel about that i'm a little bit more torn about the super tuck position um, for what it's worth, I should also mention, for as much as I ride on Zwift, there is on Zwift a super tuck position. Um, if you're riding down one of the virtual mountains in Zwift and you stop pedaling, um, your avatar on Zwift will actually get into a super tuck position and you will become more aerodynamic and speed up going down the hill faster than you would if you were sitting up and pedaling. Um, I can't help but wonder is Zwift going to also ban the super tuck position given the fact that the UCI has banned it for in real life bike racers? Um, I really don't know. Folks on Zwift love that super tuck position um, because it enables you to actually get off of your bike when your bike is descending down a hill. Um, but on the other hand, uh, Zwift has been trying to woo the UCI and trying to get more and more pro cyclists onto their platform. Uh, you'll recall that this past summer they actually hosted the UCI sponsored eSports World Championship on the Zwift platform. And so if the UCI says that it's going to be illegal, it stands to reason that maybe Zwift should say, well, we're not going to put that on our platform either. We'll see. I'm not sure. Um, cyclists had kind of mixed reactions to it. A lot of them really didn't like it. Um, there was one cyclist from Dakunik Quickstep named Elo Kees um, who said on Twitter, we will decide for ourselves how we cycle and descend. At the UCI, they should first make sure that everything within their responsibility is in order. Um, basically saying that that obviously we get to choose what risks we take and and the UCI needs to focus on things like barriers and cars and and and, and safety regulations besides actually have their positions on the bike um, but I thought it was very interesting, a quotation from a guy named Matteo Trentin. Um, Matteo Trentin is a well-known pro. Um, he is this year on UAE Team Emirates. 
Um, and for his part, he was actually part of the Professional Riders Association called the CPA um, that serves as a voice for cyclists in the formation of these new rules. And so he was actually part of the conversation that ultimately led to the banning not only of the littering, but also of the forearms on bars positions and notably the super tuck position. Um, and he said, quote, I was in the general meeting when this tuck position came up. I can tell you that personally for me, it's not that dangerous if it's done properly, but the problem is that now riders in the bunch, in the middle of the bunch are doing it and that's not safe at all. You can see more and more riders doing it when they're just sitting in the wheels. We as riders brought this up and then the topic came up in the next meeting and that led to the ban. I've had lots of calls from coaches telling me that they work with young kids who do this more and more because of our example. We're talking about under 15 riders and they're copying us. Instead, I'd like to see us teach these kids how to descend safely." Unquote. So I, I definitely feel what both of them are saying here, particularly obviously Matteo Trentin, and I'm trying to, to have some integrity and consistency across my beliefs that if I'm worried about the filtering down part about littering, I should also be worrying about the filtering part down about the super tuck position. Still working it out in my head, but by all means, let me know what it is you think about it on our Facebook page. And by the way, we will probably discuss this and lots of other things over the course of the year when we get back together with our cycling gurus, Justin and Justin. Well, we have to wait and see exactly how the cycling season is going to play out, like uh, which races are going to happen and which races aren't going to happen and all that sort of thing, before we actually decide when it is that, that Justin and Justin are going to be joining us, but hopefully sooner rather than later, and we'll discuss this more then. The other thing I want to talk about is the research on vitamin D. Um, now, a lot of y'all have heard about vitamin D over the course of the past decade or so. It's kind of this in-style vitamin. Nobody really thought all that much about it. Now everybody's kind of thinking about vitamin D. Um, I'm not a big supplement guy. Um, I, I've never been somebody who thinks that, that supplements are all that necessary. Um, you always see people who come from a gym background, um, like weightlifters and that sort of thing. They always use a whole bunch of different types of supplements and they're always looking for different ways to, to supplement what it is they're eating um, with uh, some sort of, of product. Um, and I've never been a really big supplement guy. Um, I was coaching somebody one time who asked me what supplements I use and, and I kind of mentioned a couple of things that I'll mention here in just a second. Um, and I said, well, what about you? And he says, well, I'm currently using about 25 different supplements. I kind of feel like if you're using 25 different supplements, like at that point, you're not really supplementing anything. Like the actual supplements are your diet itself. Um, and so anyway, um, I've always, like a lot of people, thought that the, the foundation for anything um, when it comes to nutrition and vitamins and minerals and macronutrients has to be your diet itself, not a supplement. But that being said, I do sometimes worry that I don't get enough iron given that I don't eat a whole lot of red meat. Um, I have definitely found that glutamine, um, which is an amino acid, um, does help with recovery, I believe. Um, and it is a key ingredient in a lot of different recovery uh, formulas uh, that you'll see on the market. Um, but I have been thinking more about vitamin D, um, not only because it's been studied so heavily over the course of the past decade here, um, and not only because I hear and read more about it in various places, but also because most of us don't have enough vitamin D in our diet, and so we get it from being out in the sun. 
Like I said, I've been doing this tour de Zwift over the course of the past seven weeks, and generally speaking, I've just been kind of staying in the house. I definitely have not been getting as much sun as I should be. It's been particularly overcast here in Atlanta over the course of the past week or so, um, and so I've kind of had in my head, I might be a little bit vitamin D deficient, um, and I don't want to be deficient. I'm not a big supplement guy, but I do think that vitamins and minerals are real, and I do think that they have an influence on how your body performs and that we need them. Um, there was also a study that came out last year that showed that there might be a link between vitamin D deficiencies and people who got severe cases of coronavirus. Um, and it suggested that, that, that if you had less vitamin D in your blood than, than what is generally considered to be a sufficient level, then you could have, rather than a minor case, potentially a major case. Um, and I'm taking lots of precautions to ensure that I don't get COVID-19, of course. Um, but I, in the event that I was exposed to it, and I have had some exposures, um, I wanted to do everything I could to ensure that I would have a minor case rather than a major case. Um, and so I've been kind of considering that. Now, the USRDA, I should say, here at the outset, is about 600 IU. Um, and put that together, you get about 4,200 IUs weekly. They do also give a maximum recommendation. The United States Food and Drug Administration also gives a maximum recommendation of 4,000 IUs daily. That's 28,000 weekly. And so in looking into that, I was also kind of thinking, well, that, that seems kind of like a big variance. And so it seems like perhaps maybe taking a supplement wouldn't be all that bad. And then as I started looking into it even more, I found out there are some people who recommend taking up to 100,000 IUs of vitamin D weekly. That would be 25 times the U.S. recommended daily allowance and almost four times of what the United States Food and Drug Administration recommends be your maximum lest it become toxic. Um, and, and so I, I really felt like, well, this might be worth looking into a little bit here. And, and so I, I decided to go to the research and see what it says. So um, I started with a meta-analysis. We often talk about meta-analyses on this podcast. Remember, meta-analyses are studies that look at other studies. I didn't want to take too deep of a dive into every single individual study. I didn't want to go to Google Scholar and type in vitamin D endurance athlete and just see everything that popped up. Um, rather, I dug in and saw if I could find some meta-analyses. And the best one I found was from 2017. It looked at 13 different studies on about 500 athletes. Um, and now, as far as meta-analyses go, that's actually a fairly low number, 13 studies on 500 athletes. But that particular study was really concerned with randomized controlled studies. And it made an argument in the introduction of the study that a lot of the stuff that we've seen about vitamin D and a lot of the research that is cited on vitamin D over the course of the past decade is not randomized controlled studies. Um, it's kind of shoddy research, in other words. Um, and we need to focus more on randomized controlled studies. And at that point, they only said, really, there's only about 13 studies that we, we feel like are, are really strongly randomly randomized and controlled. Now, to real quickly digress into that, 
Um, randomized controlled studies um, is a particular study design, and it's the one that most of us are probably familiar with. It's designed to reduce bias and, of course, produce a wide applicability of findings. Um, it involves randomly putting subjects into two separate groups, treating them differently from one another, and then comparing them at the end. And, of course, in this case, that would mean one group getting vitamin D supplements while, supplements while another group gets uh, a placebo and then looking at the end and seeing if there's anything different between those two groups. Like I said, this is kind of a pretty basic study design, but a lot of studies aren't designed that way. Some studies, they just take some people and give them all vitamin D. And let's, let's see what happens with the vitamin D over the course of six weeks. Um, and at the end of that six weeks, they measure all the people and they find that half of them have improved their fitness. Well, there's a wide variety of reasons why half of people in your study might have improved their fitness over the course of that study period um, that have nothing to do with vitamin D. Um, what you want to do with a randomized controlled study is pin down the differences to what it is you're experimenting with. Um, and so I do encourage you, if you take a deeper dive into some of the studies on vitamin D, take a look at the study design uh, and make sure that they actually are randomized controlled studies. So anyway, um, that meta-analysis I looked at from 2017 had two big findings. The first one is it found that supplementation was actually really good at addressing insufficiency. Now, that kind of feels like a duh finding, um, but it's not. Um, vitamin D, just like all, a lot of other vitamins and minerals, has a level in your blood, and there's a healthy level of vitamin D that can be measured. And so they found in these meta-analyses, or in, in this meta-analysis looking at all these different studies, it found that there were lots of people that came into the study with a deficiency that at the end of the study no longer had a deficiency. And so taking a supplement, using a supplement, actually helped to promote sufficiency. Um, that means that you can absorb a lot of vitamin D pretty quickly, um, and that's a positive thing. So that's good for me to know. Um, if I'm worried that I'm insufficient in vitamin D and I decide to go online and order a whole bunch of vitamin D right now, um, I could take some confidence in the fact that taking the supplement will actually raise my levels of vitamin D. And that's not always true. Um, some vitamins and minerals, your body just doesn't absorb very well, or it can't absorb them in large doses. And so in order to address deficiencies, it takes a really, really, really long time. Um, whereas you can address vitamin D deficiencies over the course of only about a week or so, um, and your serum levels inside your blood will actually go up. Good to know. Um, the second big finding from this meta-analysis is that between study heterogeneity was large and well-designed, i.e. those randomized controlled trials we're talking about, examining the effect of vitamin D supplementation are needed still. So in other words, they're saying that, that there was not one big takeaway that all of the studies actually point to. Some studies showed improvements um, particularly for men, uh, but not all studies showed improvements in performances for people who took vitamin D supplements. Now, many studies, and I thought this was interesting, many, many studies found that there were deficiencies at the start when they were first measuring their people for their subjects um, for, to establish the initial baselines right? Um, they found that, that there are several people that, that did have deficiency. And, and that's actually 
striking to me as well because it makes me feel as if, okay, yeah, I might truly have a deficiency as well. Um, again, these are all athletes that were a part of this meta-analysis. The 13 studies on about 500 athletes, and they found a significant portion of them actually had deficiencies at the start. I feel like me, the, the chances are good. Um, given the fact that I've been inside so much over the course of the last little while, um, given the fact that, that I don't eat a lot of vitamin D enriched foods. Um, and so that makes me think that, that, yeah, I think the chances are if I got my blood tested, I would find that I do have some sort of deficiency. Combine that with the fact that supplementation actually does address deficiency. And that makes me think that taking a vitamin D supplement is probably a good thing. Um, strangely though, not a lot really none of the studies that I looked into a little bit more deeply disaggregated their end data based on who had deficiencies at the start. So in other words, even the ones that tended to show performance benefits for people who took vitamin D supplements, they didn't say, oh, well, this person got 20% better um, and they were deficient at the start. And the reason why that's a problem is because you don't know whether having more vitamin D in your blood actually promotes performance or if just having sufficient vitamin D in your blood promotes performance. Um, and so it could be that the improvements that people saw was not because they were taking extra vitamin D, it's just because they were getting out of vitamin D deficiency. Um, for me personally, since I think, I suspect I might have a deficiency, um, that doesn't matter as much. But I did think it was sort of a, a strange quirk and a strange hole in the study design. Now, one other kind of set of studies I want to talk about here um, is, is two other studies that actually came out just within the last month or so. Um, strangely enough, they're both from Eastern Europe here, but they also caught my eye too. Um, and Alex Hutchinson, who we've had on the podcast before, wrote an article about these and tweeted about these as well. Um, and that's kind of how they caught my eye. Um, one of them was called the effect of vitamin D3 supplementation on physical capacity among active college-aged males, which, by the way, I appreciate such an on-the-nose title. <laughs> so many studies are done on active college-aged males. Um, and then we try to then put that out to the entire society that, that, that oh, what we found with this group of active college-aged males um, will certainly apply to all of you, um, when in fact th those, those findings aren't always broadly applicable. Um, and so anyway, I appreciate the fact that they were so specific in their title and they were owning up to the fact that they had a limited uh, sample. But anyway, it was from the University of Gdansk in Poland um, and it was published in Nutrients, um, the, uh, the, the journal called Nutrients. Um, in this study, they had 28 people. Um, they split them into two groups. They gave one of them a high dose of vitamin D and the other one a placebo. So again, it's that randomized controlled trial. Um, they had eight weeks was the study period. Um, and they gave them 6,000 IU a day. That's 10 times the United States recommended daily allowance. Um, and remember, it's one and a half times the maximum recommended, lest it could potentially become toxic. And so that's a, that's a big, big dose here of vitamin D. Now, it's still less than half of what I saw some people advocating uh, online, but 6,000 IU. 
Um, and what they ultimately found were significant increases in maximal aerobic power, anaerobic power, and VO2 max. Now that stood out to me because those happen to be the three places that as you get older, you decline most rapidly and most readily. Maximal aerobic power, anaerobic power, and VO2 max. Ultimately, they said, our data imply that vitamin D3 supplementation with a dose of 6,000 IU daily for eight weeks is sufficient to improve physical capacity. Very straightforward, as that title would also suggest there. Um, and so, so that, that's potentially appealing as well. Um, the second study is called The Effect of Vitamin D Supplementation on Serum Total Levels and Biochemical Markers of Skeletal Muscles in Runners. Um, this was done by a group of scientists in Poland, again, um, at the Institute for Sports Scientists, and then uh, a similar institute in Russia. Um, it was a pretty big group of scientists that did this, about a dozen. Uh, and it was published in the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutritions. Um, they took 24 runners, mostly ultra runners as a matter of fact, uh, and their study period was smaller. It was only three weeks long, um, and the amount of supplementation they gave them was smaller. It was only 2,000 international units, only 2,000 IU. Now, 2,000 IU is still close to four times the amount of the US RDA, but it's only about half the amount that is the recommended maximum by the United States Food and Drug Administration. And so I was particularly interested in this one. What they did with this group of people is they had them run a downhill test at the start and they measured the biomarkers for muscle damage. Then they had them all use uh, three weeks worth of, of either a placebo or of vitamin D. Um, and then at the end, they had them run this real kind of punishing downhill running test again. And those downhill running tests was designed to create more muscle damage because of the eccentric contraction and the pounding on your muscles there uh, that downhill running caused. Um, and the D group did better. Uh, the group that was getting a vitamin D supplementation had uh, fewer biomarkers of muscle damage. And so that suggests, of course, that if you have fuller stores of vitamin D in your blood, you can actually avoid some muscle damage. Um, if you avoid muscle damage, that means you can train at a higher level and, and perform longer and ultimately get yourself more fit. Um, and so obviously that's something that appealed to me as well. Uh, they said, quote, we concluded that vitamin D supplementation might play an important role in the pre prevention of skeletal muscle injuries following exercise with eccentric muscle contraction in athletes. So a very specific finding uh, uh, from, from this group as well, or a very specific summary. Um, in the end, I've, I've, I've decided I am going to supplement with a little bit of vitamin D. I think I'm going to go for about 2,000 IU, so about the amount that this, uh, this group here, uh, the second group actually did. Only half of what the recommended maximum is by the United States Food and Drug Association. Um, I'll let you know. Check back in with me between three weeks and, and eight weeks, <laughs> and, and I'll let you know uh, not only if I get a sense of it uh, having less muscle damage or, um, or improved maximal aerobic power or anaerobic power or VO2 max. We'll see. Um, uh, we'll see. That's what I have for you. Cycling and research, folks. Um, I appreciate your joining me here on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. By all means, reach out to me. Let me know what you think about the new rule changes in the UCI. Let me know whether you have used vitamin D and how much, and was there any effect. Um, and we will definitely talk about you on the podcast. Uh, next week, 
some combination of Eric and Michelle and Patrick will be back with me. And I'm hoping that all of you will be back with me as well. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, on Twitter at pleasantpodcast, or on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, so share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingperformance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, bluepineappletravel.com, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, and on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's slayrx.com, facebook.com slash here4slayrx, that's the number four, slayrx, Twitter, at official slayrx, and Instagram, here4slayrx, the number four, slayrx. Discount code PLEASANT21. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.